Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Carleton University professor Stephanie Carvin, whose book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security, has been shortlisted for the prestigious Donner Prize for the Best Public Policy Book by a Canadian. The prize will be awarded on Tuesday, May 31st. Stephanie, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book and its success. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for the, the congrats. The book's title calls for reassessment of Canada's national security threat. What did we used to think and why does it need to be reassessed now? So I call for a reassessment in the sense that, uh, you know, it's it's not that I think a lot of the threats have changed, right? We're still dealing with uh, violent extremism. We're still dealing with espionage. We're still dealing with foreign interference. But the way we need to actually think about those threats needs to be what I describe as responsibly underscore, underscore, underscore widened, right? And that's not to say we need to turn everything to a national security threat issue. But like, when we think about violent extremism, I mean, for a long time, we thought it only came from Al Qaeda and the Islamic State. Um, when, you know, just based on the events of 2022, we can see that's clearly not the case, that there's other uh, major threats out there. Uh, and we also need to think about who's impacted by these, right? A lot of the times when we think about violent extremism, we think about, you know, bombs going off. But really, it, there's so much more that we have to worry about. And this includes uh, the, you know, for example, people who fundraise for these movements, people who facilitate these actors, people who, uh, you know, w- w- what happens to communities when radicalizers go and, and try to, you know, target children. Uh, and that's increasingly what we're seeing, right? I mean, we can just look at the Buffalo attack, which, you know, although was not in Canada, it, it's kind of, you know, very similar. Um, you know, we've seen, we've had other attacks, the, the, the London attack of uh, 2021, where, you know, very young people are being, you know, they're consuming radicalizing materials and then acting out in violence. So these are the kinds of things that we need to think about as violent extremist activity. It's not just the attacks in and of themselves. So that's what I mean effectively by widening. And that's really kind of what I mean by reassessing. The other thing I would add to this is... Um, The other thing that's about reassessing is that we need to do this not out of fear, right? I think when we have new and scary situations, we want to, 
you know, we do so out of fear. We do so out of kind of re- in, in a reactionary kind of way. And that's something else that I think I'm trying to warn against is that we need to ground our responses, strangely enough, in empathy, which may seem counterintuitive because maybe we don't think of, you know, CSIS as the most empathetic organization. And there's many historical reasons for that. But um, really from a policy response, this is what we need. We need we need empathy with those communities that are experiencing these challenges. Uh, you know, we have to think about, you know, the impact of, you know, when, when a company loses all of its intellectual property because it's been hacked, you know, the impact on workers and things like this. So that's that's kind of my reassessing approach. Uh, that, that's great. Um, and we'll come back to the issue of empathy, which really does run through uh, through the book. Um, let me ask about the source of uh, these new and emerging threats. You observe that most national security threats uh, today come from homegrown sources. What legal or operational gaps are there currently in our ability to identify, track, and even proactively intervene in these cases? Should the government be pursuing changes or reforms in order to strengthen our ability to mitigate some of these spectacular threats manifesting themselves? So that that's a really good question. I think there's both cultural and legal barriers. So cultural is kind of what I started out with, right? Like for a long time, we assumed that terrorism could only come from, you know, uh, the Middle East or from uh, Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. And we've seen that in our prosecutions, right? Like the vast majority of terrorism prosecutions in this country are for acts that were carried out to further the end of, of you know, like an Al-Qaeda or, or an Islamic State. Uh, but and, and, and on the other hand, a lot of the, you know, when we're talking about white nationalists or white supremacists, they're often charged with hate crimes, right? So uh, that that's an issue and, and kind of a, a hypocrisy that I think has has impacted the way we kind of look at these threats for a very long time. I do think it's starting to change. Uh, so that's that's kind of one. But it is, a, I think, a cultural barrier. And, you know, one of the things I have to think of is... Um, I want to be careful what I say here because, you know, the Freedom Convoy is a very large and complex movement. But, you know, within that movement, there were extremists uh, kind of at the core of it, but also, I think, uh, who tried to latch on to it as well. Right. And, you know, if this if this if that group had been any other group right if if these people had been doing this for for pretty much any other you know call, like kind of extremist cause uh we we would have probably had a very different response from police uh you know they they were probably you know would they have let them come into town and, and these kinds of things when you had an extremist group right uh Diagon, for example coming in and, and recording themselves saying hey let's turn this into canada's january 6 before the event uh and and the police still kind of welcoming them in, um, you wonder, like, are there systemic biases in here? And, and the answer is almost certainly yes. So I think that there's those cultural challenges. But legally, there's a lot of challenges, too. And a lot of, but a lot of, some of it relates from inertia, right? We, we just are really bad at updating our national security legislation. But I would say, in addition to that, um, a lot of the questions we have to answer are complex. And I think there's some challenges here. So for one example, with, um, you know, violent extremism, as it slowly, you know, the priority threat becomes what we call ideologically motivated violent extremism, um, which we usually associate with, you know, not perfectly the far right, white supremacists, but, you know, even in some cases, the far left, it, it, it depends what we're talking about. It's it's the the, the distinctions are not always clear, uh, even to the movements themselves. Uh, these movements exist online right? They're really online movements. So to what extent do we want our national security agencies going online 
into these spaces and looking for threat-related activity? And how do we, do we want CSIS monitoring the internet is, is the question that we have to ask ourselves. And if so, to what extent? Um, because that's a really tough question to answer. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of civil liberties groups have, have raised serious questions about how this is done, how data is absorbed, ingested, retained, uh, and then eventually turned into products. Like, these are very good questions. Another good question is even in the area of critical infrastructure protection, where, you know, you have problems with you know, different, um, you know, particularly, you know, given the, the the Russia-Ukraine war, we're worried about, you know, attacks on our critical infrastructure. And most critical infrastructure in Canada, as in most Western countries, are in um, private sector hands, right? But the CSIS Act actually limits who that organization can talk to, right? It can only really advise the government of Canada. It doesn't give it permission to talk outside the government of Canada. So sh do we actually want our national security agencies being able to talk to the private sector? But again, civil liberties groups raise the questions. They're like, are you going to then talk about, you know, indigenous protesters to logging companies and mining companies and, you know, who would do the oversight of this and these kinds of activities? So yes, we have you know, it's a very long answer, but the answer is we have both these kind of cultural issues, but also we have to make some very hard decisions about how we want our national security agencies to engage in this space. And, you know, it is hard to kind of uh, hit that right balance. The book, Stephanie, also talks about the human resource and operational capacity of our national security organizations. You've worked in these organizations and even interviewed many of the current officials uh, for your academic scholarship. What's your sense of how we compare to peer jurisdictions when it comes to human resources and overall capacity? What are our strengths and weaknesses? So one of the issues is that, generally speaking, and in, in the National Security Intelligence Commu uh, Committee of Parliamentarians, uh, which is one of the review bodies we have set up in Canada, did a study on human resources issues in Canada, including um, equality, diversity, and inclusion issues. And they found that while some organizations are doing okay, by and large, uh, national security agencies are still behind other government agencies when it comes to recruiting more diverse um, individuals. And that, that impacts, you know, obviously um, how these organizations run, how they look at issues. The other thing we found, uh, you know, I wrote a book separate from this one. Uh, everyone should just buy all my books. That should be the theme of this podcast. But we wrote another book uh, and that we, I think you you definitely featured on the Hub, um, I believe, last uh last December, um, was uh, the uh, intelligence and policymaking in Canada. And we, for that, we actually asked, you know, officials in Canada how they felt about diversity. And what was really interesting is that there was clearly two different ways they thought about diversity in the national security establishment. And some people were actually talking about EDI issues, right, representation and how that matters. But it was also clear that people were thinking of like neurodiversity and diversity in the way that people think. And that you need people who think differently. That that's a, that's a different kind of diversity than from EDI. So, uh, you know, it's funny. Um, I'm not sure that this, the com community itself has has really thought about what it means. Um, you can it, you can bring in people who are diverse, you know, ethnically, religiously into an organization, but if that organization still has systemic barriers in it, it's not going to be 
very, very different. If everyone still thinks the same way, it's not going to be very, very different. But then again, you can bring in people who are neurodiverse, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're hitting, um, you know, various EDI goals. So there's a lot more that we need to do. Uh, we do have trouble recruiting generally. If you want to work in national security, it's a long process. It can take up to 18 months for security clearance. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a black box. Often you don't know what's happening. You're just kind of waiting for, you know, every, every few months from an email from HR. And, um, you know, you know, or some organizations have identified recruitment as possibly even one of their chief threats, right? The fact that, you know, if, if you are trying to recruit cyber talent, well, you're competing, you're competing with Google, you're competing with like organizations that can pay a lot more money. So it's all these are, are huge challenges that, that we're facing from an HR perspective. And um, yeah, I, I'm not sure we've squared the circle on that either. <laughs> If I could just follow up with a, a supplementary question. Um, today's May 26. Uh, we released an, an episode of Hub Dialogues with former Canadian ambassador to China, David Mulroney, earlier today, in which, amongst other things, he argued that the government of Canada needs to up its China competency. So maybe just more broadly, are we within our national security organizations developing capacities in these new areas of potential threat from new and emerging geopolitical risks? You mentioned cyber attacks and other forms of technological uh, attacks on Canada. Like, Do you have a sense, Stephanie, of, in addition to the big question of EDI, just if we have the right set of, of skills and talents and experiences to carry out the kind of national security operations um, that we need to in, in the, the new world you describe in the book? So I think, you know, I'll answer this with two points. The first point is that uh, one of the things that, you know, when it comes to, I, I agree very much with David Mulroney and what he's saying. We don't actually do area studies in this country, right? We, we don't. Um, and I think that's a huge problem. We, we don't really, we kind of teach people French, you know, in Ontario, you can kind of get out of it uh, pretty early in your, in your, um, uh, education. And I think that's something we really lack. Like if you go to a lot of countries around the world, like people are speaking like three, four languages and it's so important. Right. And then even at the, the tertiary, tertiary level of education, right. We're not teaching um, the area studies in the way that I think would be useful and, and promote kind of cultural exchange and understanding. So I think that's another issue. Um, but also I think there's an issue that's structural in national security agencies, which is that we have in many of them, um, you know, I can speak uh, specifically to to RCMP and, and CSIS, which is that they they have a generalist model, right? If you work for the RCMP, um, you go, you do your training in Depot, Saskatchewan, and then you probably spend a couple of years doing rural policing somewhere on a contract basis. And then suddenly you're put on a complex national security file. And you're not necessarily given the kind of training that you need in order to run this. And we've had time and time again, problems with the way evidence is collected, understood, done, because we don't really develop specialization. And I, I find that, um, you know, in Canada, we don't do training. We don't do a lot of language training. We don't do area training. Um, you know, we, do, we don't invest in education. And so I think you know, there's there's that aspect of, 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 you know, the training and education element, which should be ongoing. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, there's a lot to criticize with the U.S. military, let's just say that. But one of the things they're always doing is investing in their in their top leadership, right? They're like a lot of generals and um, their senior leadership have masters and PhDs, right? They, they go out and do that. Um, Canada, we don't really invest 
in that way. And then on top of that, this kind of generalist model, which kind of assumes that, you know, you can fit in any role and do any kind of investigation and be fine uh, because you've been trained as an intelligence officer is okay. I, I don't think that's right. I think we actually need to have a mix of generalists and specialists within our national security organizations. But, um, you know, this is actually just kind of a, a holdover from colonial days. It's <laughs> and, and when, you know, back in the RCMP back in the 1870s. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Uh, That's a great answer. A a lot of food for thought there, Stephanie. If I can shift the subject uh, to another topic the book takes on, which is the somewhat controversial issue of misinformation and disinformation. If you'll permit me, let me ask a a three-part question. First, how do you define these terms? Second, how do you differ between state-sponsored efforts versus individual activities? And three, how can we ensure that efforts to challenge or even remove misinformation and disinformation from the internet doesn't threaten debatable yet legitimate ideas or arguments? Wow, that, those are some heavy, heavy questions. I feel like this could be a podcast in and of itself. Uh, so, you know, so there's uh, disinformation. Disinformation is where you're trying to actively promote something that's false, right? Like you're trying to promote a rumor. Um, so, for example, we have seen, uh, for example, from Russia, a lot of effort to promote this idea that um, 5G causes uh, COVID, right, at the beginning of the pandemic, or that vaccines, you know, are, are bad for you, all these kinds of things, right? And then you have misinformation, which is where the intention's a little bit different, right? The, you know, some people who are just misinformed are spreading bad information to people who are out there. It's not really the same kind of intention as disinformation, but it can be just as harmful, right? So someone who, you know, is reading some of these things and then is like kind of posting their own information um, about them and, and, and that information's wrong. And then I would actually add a third category to that, which is uh, sometimes called malinformation. Malinformation is where you have information that's actually hacked on the internet. So when you, um, they call it doxing someone, uh, D-O-X-X-I-N-G, uh, where, you know, you get someone's uh, personal information and then you dump it all over the internet and then you spread it for the, for purpose, for malicious purposes. Uh, perhaps the most famous example of this is the John Podesta emails, right? Um, that, you know, they took the emails of a senior democratic advisor to Hillary Clinton, uh, and by they, I mean Russia, and then spread it all over the internet. So that's a kind of malinformation. So there's, there's different, there really is different kinds of actors in this space. And uh, yeah, so there's there, you're right, there's both uh, state actors and individuals in this space. And I actually think the state actor aspect to this can be overrated. 
right? Um, that uh, for a number of reasons. One, um, the vast majority of misdismal information that we receive in Canada is almost certainly from the United States and from from actors uh, in the United States, right? Not state actors. There was a survey I think that was done by um, actually the Global Rapid Reaction Mechanism, uh, the GRRM at Global Affairs Canada, looking at um, potential sources of disinformation in one of the Alberta elections, and they found that the vast majority of it, like the vast, vast, vast majority, almost all of it was from Albertans themselves, right? Was from Canadians themselves. Uh, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's the second part of it here too, is that, you know, just because a campaign exists doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work, right? Um, a lot of times you have people who are already predisposed to believe certain ideas. And so they see this and they agree with it. So they put it out. Um, but, you know, just because you see a piece of disinformation doesn't believe doesn't automatically make you believe it. It's actually hard to hack human brains um, that are out there, right? There, there's a lot more that's happening than just mistis malinformation. And, you know, that gets to problems of trust and, um, you know, beliefs about society and extremism and populism and all these other questions. Um, so, yeah, I would actually say the the individual or non-state level here is probably actually the more complex. And then that speaks to your third question is, uh, what do you then, then do about it, right? Um, I think... To a large extent, um, it's going to depend on when we can find things that are artificially amplified, right, by by states. Um, one of the, the things that we saw, um, you know, there's this extremely tragic case that's happening right now in the United States with uh, the shooting in Texas at a school, right? Um, and almost immediately after, malicious actors were trying to blame a transgendered individual for having committed the act. And uh, we've already seen some transgender violence as directly as, as a result of that mis uh, sorry, disinformation campaign uh, about it. So uh, we, I think we have to do something about it. Uh, the social media platforms themselves are aware of this. They have um, been pretty successful in, in some aspects of this. So for example, the Buffalo shooter, um, when he started live streaming his attacks, they were able to take down the live video, I believe within two minutes of that. That's actually relatively impressive. Uh, the fact that um, the Christchurch shooting after the video was uploaded, Facebook, I think, ended up, you know, there was, I think, 1.6 million attempts to upload the video of which Facebook was able to take down um, 1.3 in a very, very quickly. But that still left 300,000 attempts that they had to then go and, and find and take down as well. So, you know, we are seeing the social media companies themselves learning how to respond to this in, in a much more quick fashion. The problem is, though, it's like it's the more slow moving radicalization material that these individuals are consuming over time. Right. You can take down yeah, the videos of someone shooting someone. But, it, you know, the fact is, we know from the manifestos of both in both of those incidents that these people had been consuming far right materials for a very long period of time. And that's where we need to focus our efforts and, and how we do that in a democratic way is an extremely complicated question. I mean, we do have laws in Canada about hate speech and things like this. We just don't seem to be able to enforce them online and in a way that is um, easy. And I think the other thing here that that's a challenge is, is you know, the takedown orders. Um, this can sometimes impede uh, police investigations or, you know, hurt researchers or trying to understand this phenomenon. There's a lot of hard questions here. I do note that the government has set up 
uh, a, a committee of experts that includes both lawyers and experts on extremism who will be reporting by the end of the summer on um, a procedure to follow. So, you know, I'm just going to cop out of this long answer by saying, although to be fair, it's a long question. Uh, I'm going to cop out of this by saying, I know we are expecting a report and I eagerly await the recommendations of it uh, that I believe will be going to the Heritage uh, Minister sometime uh, later this year. Stephanie, in effect, I think what I'm hearing from you is that this is will necessarily require a process of trial and error and something of an iterative legal regime as opposed to a big bang. Do you want to just talk a bit about how this would involve policymakers sort of rethinking the way that they do um, national security legislation from a, a tendency in the past to think you just need to pass a law and that solves our problems versus this process of trial and error iteration that you've just outlined? What my concern is when we answer these questions is really how, like, we're not going to answer this with platitudes. Like, it's not, it's like, you know, uh, you know, the best free, the best answer to hate speech is more speech, you know, like, I mean, it's, it's just, the fact is, this is going to be messy, and we're going to get things wrong. And I just think, you know, the idea that we're going to have this perfect policy is, is going to be a problem. And actually, I think that's a problem for national security policy generally, which is that you have this, you know, in Canada, we don't actually pass a lot of legislation very often. Um, we kind of have this idea that, okay, we're going to pass this omnibus bill, usually in the wake of a tragedy, uh, like uh, 9-11 or uh, the October 2014 shootings, and we pass these large bills thinking, okay, we've solved the problem, and we don't have to think about this again for another 10 years. Whereas other jurisdictions, you know, they'll pass little small bills every other year, right? And so the fact is we need to get used to having policies that are, are much more flexible and laws that, you know, can be updated much more quickly, um, especially when we're dealing with these kind of fluid issues, because we have to work with the assumption that our first attempts to do this are going to be flawed, whether it is trying to restrict the amount of information uh, uh, that, you know, or how we, how we do these things uh, in terms of the information space, but also, you know, things like uh, restricting funding from uh, China when it comes to our research labs, right? I mean, there's, the government has come in and introduced all these law, uh, all these policies now about if you want federal funding, you know, you have, you know, we're going to restrict which partners you can use. And, you know, they've put in these policies and, you know, there's already concerns being raised about prejudice against, uh, you know, Asian American uh, or Asian Canadian scholars that they are, um, you know, being left out of, of of applications because there's too much fear that they're going to be um, rejected by the government because they're Chinese. And I mean, like that that's a real problem. Right. So the fact is, when we put these policies in place, we need to be much more nimble about them and not just see them as, OK, we fix this problem. Now let's go to the next problem. Now let's go to the next problem. We need to have a much more uh, robust problem. But this this gets into problems of parliament and how we don't pass a lot of bills anymore. And, and that's that's another issue entirely. But um, but it does impact national security. Stephanie, let me ask a penultimate question about cyber attacks. It's something you mentioned earlier, but it's 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 worth expanding upon because it's a, a topic that the book directly addresses. How well is Canada prepared today for cyber attacks? And what should be the role of the public and private sectors to improve our capacity to defend such attacks against our critical infrastructure? So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot we don't, actually don't know about cyber attacks in Canada. And, and for for important structural reasons, right? I mean, um, the government doesn't 
like to give a lot of its, you know, secret classified information to the private sector and the private sector doesn't like to raise up its hand and say, hey, look, we got to act uh, because that's not good for its reputation or investment uh, that's that, that's often needed. Right. So, you know, they they often keep these things very quiet or if they're subject to a ransomware attack um, or where, you know, their data is being held hostage, they, they often, you know, will find a middleman to deal with it and then pay the ransom, get the information back rather than. Uh, exposing it. And the only time we ever know if that's the case is uh, if a personal information is taken, then it has to be reported to the privacy commissioner. So all that being said, we don't actually have great insight, I think, into how badly Canada's being hacked. I think there's a large assumption that with the work from home environment, we now seem to be in, even as we're getting out of the pandemic, that there, there that there's been a surge uh, of cybercrime because people are no longer behind, you know, corporate machines and things like that. They're working on their their home computer that that you know maybe not have the best uh, up to date software and things like this. And also, people tend, you know, when you know people can uh, a lot of the hackers we've seen recently been very creative with with how they're um, doing their 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 crime effectively by you know um, saying oh here's your COVID test results and uh, sending a malicious link and things like this. So uh, there's a lot we don't know, and that's a problem. Um, but at this wider scale of, of critical infrastructure, I mean, you know, it, it's interesting. I Harvard University's Belfer Center ranked Canada as number eight in the world, really, for its cyber defensive capabilities. Like, we're doing a not totally terrible job, right? And it, one of the advantages that Canada has over its allies is that we're much more nimble. We've really centralized our cyber responses in the communication security establishment and the Canada Center for Cybersecurity. Um, and, th- and that's good, right? Because in the US, cyber defense is, I think, across something like 13 different agencies that all have to coordinate their responses when a major incident happens. And so, you know, we're, we're much more nimble in that respect. And I think, so, so that's a good thing. But, we have a long way to go. I mean, uh, you know, companies, they would rather invest or, or pay dividends to their shareholders. Uh, they don't want to invest in cybersecurity. Uh, hospitals would rather buy, you know, hire nurses or buy um, machinery rather than invest in cybersecurity. And, and then, you know, um, you have cases like in Newfoundland uh, last year where they were. And then you have cases like Newfoundland where your entire hospital system goes down because it's subject to what was almost certainly a ransomware attack, right? So, yeah, I mean, we are still exceptionally vulnerable in these ways. Um, and we really need to encourage uh, the private sector to be investing in these ways. So it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, uh, the government did just announce, of course, that it is banning uh, or it's coming up with, sorry, I should say more correctly, it's coming up with a, a, a process by which the, uh, you know, Huawei and ZTE, uh, you know, two Chinese companies will be banned from um, 5G and, and therefore important parts of our critical infrastructure. But accompanying that is going to be legislation that's going to enhance cybersecurity, right? Because, you know, people think that just simply banning Huawei or ZTE is going to fix the problem. It's not, right? The problem is that in all technology, there's these gaping holes, something you know, we often call zero days, where there are security flaws that we don't know about that can be exploited by malicious actors. And, uh, you know, we need we need the government to, to do more in terms of regulation, in terms of requirements, and possibly introducing policies that will help uh, plug some of these holes so that, you know, um, if, you know, things start really going bad in the Russia-Ukraine war, that we don't have to worry about, uh, you know, things like our dams, our electrical grids and things like this. You, you've been so generous with your time, Stephanie. Let me wrap up with a final question that comes back to a, a point you made earlier about empathy. Uh, just have you uh, elaborate a bit on the book's argument that Canada should avoid, quote, securitizing every threat and instead 
deploy empathy to deal with some of these national security issues. Uh, what do you mean by that? And why is empathy a better approach than securitization? So, yeah, so securitization is, yeah, the process by which you take an issue, a political issue, and you say this is now a security threat. And therefore, you're kind of taking it out of the realm of normal politics. And you're kind of saying we need almost extra legal means or special emergency powers to actually deal with this thing, right? Um, no shade on the Emergency Act, which, you know, can be a whole different podcast as well. But uh, the the fact is, like, you know, uh, there's a lot of people saying the pandemic is a national security threat, right? Because of the impact that it had on our economy, on our lives and all these things. And I would say, no, um, the pandemic is not a national security threat. It is a public health emergency with national security elements in it. Uh, climate change is not a national security threat. It is a policy challenge and it, it's definitely a crisis, but it's not one that we should be dealing with. You know, I don't think CSIS should have a climate change bureau, uh, right? I mean, um, it, it should, what it should be studying are the impacts that, that, that climate change could have on the international security environment. That, that makes a lot more sense. So that's what I mean. We, we, we need to right size our understanding of what security is. And just because something's bad doesn't make it a national security threat. I'm very much, there's a lot of people who want to widen the idea of security. And I've argued for widening the idea of threat but not necessarily our conception of security. I'm actually, I try to, I try to keep it fairly minimal because I don't want CSIS, you know, pontificating on these issues. They have enough to deal with right now. So I actually think the better response is empathy in a lot of ways. So it's like, how do we partner with communities where we know radicalizers are going in and targeting children um, or, or that have just suffered a, a violent extremist attack? Uh, how do we work with companies that are, you know, under the pressure of possibly being hacked um, and deal with them in such a way and help them for recover uh, while perhaps, you know, be, um, being mindful of, of what they need uh, in order to continue to thrive and things like that. How do we, you know, one of, one of the key issues here, I think, too, is uh, uh, foreign interference or what I call clandestine foreign uh, influence in the book. And that is, you know, for a long time, we've seen you know, communities in Canada, the Tamil community, uh, the Chinese community, aspects of the uh, the Indian diaspora, they've been targeted by state actors uh, and harassed. And the fact is, we've always seen this as a foreign issue, right? We don't see these groups as Canadians, right? We, we don't see them as um, a part of our country, a part of our fabric. But the fact is, they are. And it's unacceptable that they are being hacked, that they're being tracked, that they're being threatened by foreign states while they're on Canadian territory. So we need to react in such a way that's empathetic and perhaps most controversially. I'll end on a controversial note because why not be interesting? But like even with the convoy in, in Ottawa, right, not everyone there is or was a Nazi. Not everyone there was a malicious actor, right? There, this was a, a populist movement. And what ended up, I think the way we need to understand the vast majority of people who, who participated, at least in the opening days, they were frustrated, right? Like, I'm frustrated with the pandemic. Like, I, I'm tired of lockdowns. I'm tired of, of, of having my life restricted. Now, I'm not going to go out and protest in the streets, but I'm tired too, right? And suddenly you have a group that offers a policy solution, which is, let's just drop everything, Let's just, you know, we're going to drop everything. We're going to get rid of all the mandates and we're going to protest so we have it. And, you know, they, they offered a solution where our, you know, government at all levels, municipal, provincial and federal, didn't offer anything. Right. They weren't offering hope. They were just saying, well, you know, we'll wait and see. Like they didn't offer 
you know, almost any kind of hope. And and I think that's that's where we needed to be empathetic. I think that was the the missed opportunity for for this. So I think when we look back at, at this, we have to kind of do through do so through empathetic eyes and people who you know were tired of of. Um, and, and again, I, I'm not excusing the behavior of the organizers or the neo-Nazi groups that were trying to take advantage of this. But some of the perhaps initial supporters of this, this kind of wave, who saw a, a policy solution being offered and were supportive of that because, you know, they're they're just so tired of everything. And that's, that's a kind of empathy. It doesn't mean we have to agree with them, but we have to understand their perspective in doing so. And... I think if we did this, then it might offer us uh, some, some ways out. And again, we have to be super careful here. I don't want to de- uh, legitimate disinformation and things like that, but understanding perhaps the policy failures that led to this movement, I, I think is going to be really important in terms of countering it as, as we go forward. That's just one of the, the many key insights of Stephanie Carvin's book, Stand on Guard, Reassessing Threats to Canada's National Security. It's up for the Donner Prize. This episode will be released on May 31st, which happens to be the day the Donner Prize will be awarded. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and and good luck on uh, awarding of the prize on May 31st. You know, honestly, they say it's an honor to be nominated, and I I really mean that. I'm up against some crazy, amazing competition, some just brilliant authors, and just to even see my name up there is is, uh, like winning the prize itself. So I'm happy as we are. This is good. This is good. This is great. And to have this come out that day, that's even better. So thank you for having me on. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. Thanks for listening.